0: Welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Today's lecture, Ecological Biochemistry, is perhaps uh, a very interesting one for most students. What we're going to talk about today is uh, a little bit of uh, what I'll call the the popularized version of toxicology, where we talk about poisons, especially natural-based poisons. Uh, Unbeknownst to many of us, uh, the natural world is undergoing very dramatic chemical warfare. Uh, Species interactions, species challenges, species survival, in terms of uh, chemicals and Warfare. There's also a lot of biochemical uh, synthesis that is used for communication for fundamental uh, molecular processes in various species. Some of these are non-toxic, but some of them as well are toxic. What's interesting to us as being uh, predators are a part of the food ecology, uh, the ecology of food, the fact that we, in fact, are a part of a food chain, hopefully our own. Uh, is that uh, these chemicals have the potential to impact us. What we're going to try to do is put this in a very broad context, the context of ecology, the context of biochemistry as it relates to ecology. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to try to have you do is define ecological biochemistry. So we'll give you just a quick definition. uh, For those of you that uh, have not studied ecology, Uh, We're not going to try to get into uh, the large range of adaptive and uh, ecological definition that we might have out there. We would like to have you explain biochemical adaptation and the roles of secondary compounds. Uh, In fact, if we look from an evolutionary basis, how have plants and animals adapted to the natural world around them? Uh, For example, plants. Uh, Plants don't move, and we'll talk about the fact that in fact uh, a, a, a place on the food chain where you can't run away from your predator is in fact a very precarious position. So how have plants actually adapted, and how, perhaps, have they developed these secondary compounds? And we'll define what these secondary compounds are in terms of plant systems. We'll try as well to have you describe the detoxification primary metabolic pathways in plants and animals. Now, in our earlier lectures, we went through quite a bit about biotransformation, and so you kind of know and understand what organisms do, and especially what we do, in terms of transforming chemical toxicants to try to eliminate them, to detoxify them so in fact they don't have a toxic end effect on us. Well, what about a plant system, and we'll talk about some of the differences and some of the similarities that plants have with our own biotransformation. We'd like to have you explain the key processes and factors involved in biotransformation and biodegradation. Those of you that uh, know a little bit about microbiology, biodegradation, and uh, some of the processes out there know that, uh, in fact, uh, microbes eat, and sometimes they eat things that are toxic. In fact, microbes uh, have a remarkable ability to mutate and adjust to their environments as a key survival mechanism and if that environment is potentially toxic what can happen is that the high metabolic turnover the high uh, uh, mutation capability of, uh, of microbes can actually yield a situation where what a chemical that was once toxic uh, uh, tomorrow becomes lunch in fact We'll try to have you uh, explain and explore the concepts of sequestration, which you kind of know and understand, because our body fats sequester chemical toxicants, uh, bioaccumulate, how an organism can accumulate, especially when we look at it from a food chain basis, and also biomagnification, how we magnify up a food chain in terms of the overall concentrations of a toxicant within a trophic food chain. Uh, We'll try to have you contrast different forms of ecological-biochemical interaction and we'll do this with a couple of case studies or examples that I hope you'll find quite interesting. Well, it's a good idea to define biochemistry from an ecological perspective. Ecological biochemistry is a coupling of the observational science of ecology with the molecular science of biochemistry. Okay, so we're looking at ecology. And what is ecology? Uh, Ecos, the Greek word, means household. Uh, Ecology is essentially the study of the household, the household of nature if we are to understand ecology we need to understand ecological interaction among all of the plant and animal kingdoms so we have animals and fungi plants uh, protists and monera Um, these are the five kingdoms they all have the ability to interact i always like to ask students when you reflect on yesterday and what you ate yesterday how many of the different plant and animal kingdoms did you feed from? In other words, uh, did you have some chicken? Did you couple that with a spinach salad and perhaps have some mushrooms on your spinach salad? And then unbeknownst to you, perhaps there was some microbial contamination. So I would suspect that many of us dine regularly on all of the kingdoms uh, in ecology. In terms of ecological biochemistry, what we're very interested in is the synthesis and transformation of chemicals in the environment. Some of these are as a result of the processes in an organism, and it has been hypothesized that we have many of these biochemicals and chemicals developed to aid a species in survival. Now we don't know that in particular with some of these chemical compounds, but we can look at the development of specific compounds like toxins and venoms, especially toxins and venoms that are used in an offensive way or a defensive way in terms of battling, in terms of survival of a species when there actually is overt uh, uh, biochemical uh, warfare. There is the potential in ecological biochemistry to have biochemical adaptation. And this is a fact that can happen as a result of biosynthesis. Have you ever asked yourself why certain plants have uh, poisons or certain animals have poisons? What was the selection process that took place? Why are those, those uh, particular uh, flavors or uh, smells associated uh, with a particular animal or plant. Is it a flavor or a smell to make it desirable so that, in fact, uh, we eat it and then deposit the seed pods uh, when we uh, go through the process of elimination and, therefore, spread the seed of this particular plant around? There are many, in terms of ecological biochemistry, that think that this is one of the survival strategies, for example, of plants that are relatively immobile. Uh, We can have uh, uh, detoxification processes in ecological biochemistry we have tremendous uh, uh, enzymatic pathways and chemical transformation pathways we reviewed several of them in uh, I believe it was lecture eight where we talked about biotransformation we saw uh, and listed many of the enzymes many of the cofactors that uh, mammals use in biodegradation in how we transform or degrade or change uh, chemicals to allow them to be uh, a bit more uh, uh, soluble and in many cases uh, easily eliminated. Um, In microbes there is also the potential for Uh, biodegradation and the conversion of these food substrates all the way to carbon dioxide and water so we take an organic compound on one side of the reaction and through these detoxification biodegradation reactions have nothing but carbon dioxide and water on the other side a complete oxidation chemistry We can also see, in terms of uh, ecological biochemistry, bioaccumulation and biomagnification of the food chain, and we'll talk about those in some of the examples uh, during today's lecture. We also (coughs) can look at ecological-biochemical interaction. What happens, for example, when we uh, find uh, that certain species actually require the chemicals produced by another species in terms of their own survival. So there is a potential for what has been referred to as coevolution, where there's a symbiotic relationship between uh, two types of species, two types of, of organisms, uh, that uh, require each other uh, for uh, success in terms of the overall competitive strategy of each. Now, biochemical adaptation can be defined as the metabolic flexibility of a living organism to fit into a changing environment, thus improving their chances for survival and reproduction. Now, why do we have this biochemical adaptation? There's two basic time-based pathways. One is evolution. And in evolution, we have many, many generations. And so as the tree splits off, some of these mutations, some of these changes will allow for a higher degree of adaptability. Uh, for example, uh, many animals uh, that uh, had to adapt to various uh, ice ages, climate changes that didn't have the necessary bottom body fat, the metabolics, or uh, the uh, the fur uh, would not uh, be successful in this overall evolutionary adaptation. We also have a shorter term uh, acclimatization, and this process happens typically within the lifetime of an individual and so this is usually a low dose low toxicity low uh, lethality threshold it's a challenge and then the organism has a chance to adapt to this particular chemical or physical challenge now think about that if we're we're constantly biotransforming uh, many of the chemical challenges that we have via enzyme systems if we teach our system via constant uh, uh, low-dose uh, uh, pressure or stress, uh, we can have the situation develop where we have a higher level of certain types of enzymes. Our enzyme levels adapt, they acclimatize, and that's within one generation, within a lifetime. So that's an individual base, whereas evolution will be more of a population base. We as scientists have a challenge, and our challenge is to decipher the strategy of the natural world. If you look around, you try and make sense of all the bright colors, all the flavors, all the smells, all the toxins that appear to us in the natural world. We can look at it in terms of competitive, but also assistive pathways. I like to use the example of uh, drug and drug-type compounds, uh, these uh, uh, neurotoxins, and I'm going to give the example of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, which is the active ingredient in the marijuana plant. Now think about this. Why does the marijuana plant uh, actually have a chemical compound uh, that uh, essentially can change the uh, mental state of uh, a a higher animal. Now think about this for a second. This isn't just uh, for the case for the entertainment or recreation of uh, some uh, folks that uh, uh, like recreational drugs. Uh, if you look at it in a natural context, perhaps you can, uh, you can kind of take a look at this as uh, the plant itself may be uh, making uh, herbivores uh, a little bit high that feed on it. You feed too much on the, on the marijuana plant and you, as an herbivore, then become easy prey for a higher predator. And so if, uh, for example, uh, uh, animals are grazing, and they're grazing on this particular plant, uh, they too then become stoned. And as a stoned uh, animal in a dog-eat-dogs world, they become uh, better prey. And so it does adjust the balance. And so this might be one way to look at the strategy of this particular plant. In having a neurotoxin available, uh, a a somewhat pleasant neurotoxin, it is not necessarily bitter or repulsive to the animal, but in fact it changes its mental state, makes it easier prey. One of the things we have to look at in ecological biochemistry from a contextual point of view is the Potential for competitive and also symbiotic interactions, and these can be interactions that are plant to plant. And these can be, for example, one plant trying to outcompete another plant. Uh, If you are a gardener, you probably scratch your head or you get puzzled, like myself, at why weeds seem to thrive so well, seem to be so drought tolerant, seem to to grow uh, so much easier than the cultivated species that I'd like to grow in terms of my fruits and vegetables. Um, What's the competitive strategy of the weed as opposed to uh, perhaps uh, the less competitive uh, fruit or vegetable that I'm trying to grow? And you can also take a look at competitive interactions in terms of plant-animal interrelationships. Are there specific plants that uh, certain species of animals will feed on, Because not because of the nutritive qualities, the fact that they get carbohydrates, proteins, and fats from these plants, but because they get selective dosing of specific secondary plant compounds. The secondary plant compounds are not the proteins, carbohydrates, and fats that we would need as energy resources. These are other chemicals. These are the chemicals that, for instance, give it color, flavor, taste, bitterness, toxicity. In terms of animal-animal interactions, uh, we can uh, see, in terms of our own personal history and observations of the natural world, the presentation of various venoms and toxins. Uh, Many of us have been bit uh, by a spider, stung by a bee, and we've experienced uh, these animal-to-animal venoms and toxins in a very direct way. Some of these, again, can be offensive weapons in terms of uh, a strategy to immobilize prey. Another can be a defensive strategy in terms of trying to uh, just uh, paralyze or uh, uh, harm the animal uh, sufficiently so that they can get away and run and hide. Now, some of these uh, toxins uh, need to be related to the particular animal or plant's survival strategy. Uh, organisms often synthesize or use these various toxins in their survival strategy. And uh, an interesting quote here is Feeney in 1975. And as I said, as in terms of uh, leading up to this, uh, one has to kind of wonder about this challenge of of plants to survive, being the fact that they are largely mobile. In Feeney's words, the most conspicuous non-event in the history of the angiosperms is the failure of insects and other herbivores to attack plants on a wide scale. And I think what he's done in this is adequately really addressed the the issue of, uh, you know, in terms of locust feeds and and other uh, insects and animals that have the ability to move around Why haven't in our ecological history, haven't these mobile species essentially stripped the planet clean of these plants? You know, if you talk about ecology, a lot of times uh, in introductory ecology, you'll do the fox-rabbit interplay. uh, That if there is an overpopulation of rabbits, typically the population of foxes will respond because there's a lot to feed on. But sometimes what happens is there's overfeeding, there becomes lack of food, the foxes starve, they die off, and it gives the, ch- the population of rabbits uh, to, uh, uh, the ability to increase because of less predatory pressure. Uh, it's also been identified in the context of marine animals with sharks and minnows um, in terms of uh, food and feed relationships. Um, As it turns out, plants dominate the landscape, hence plants must be broadly toxic with respect to animals as food and toxic in the widest sense. Um, What we see is that uh, the fact that we have not stripped the planet clean uh, via animal predation on plants uh, suggests that plants, in fact, have the ability to fight back. And so we're going to explore how plants have the ability to fight back in terms of some of their toxins, some of their strategies. And I'm sure this is a complex part of the reproductive and survival ecology of plants. Somehow overcoming this defense strategy of plants uh, by insects and herbivores on the other side of the coin is a part of their survival strategy. So for example, you've probably heard of various toxic plants that if we eat them, they're toxic but if certain other types of animals eat them, it is relatively non-toxic to them. And we'll talk about those in a couple of case studies. Now, what are these broad category of secondary plant compounds? This is an important thing to kind of understand. These are uh, chemicals that aren't the molecules of life. They're not the energy chemicals. These are a range of chemicals, and they're high in diversity in terms of types and forms, uh, chemical structures. Uh, they've developed, uh, according to an hypothesis, implants as a part of their survival mechanism. And so it can be a part of their offensive and defensive biosynthesis processes. If we take a look at some of these uh, compounds, and this is by no means a complete list. This is just to kind of introduce you and alert you to some of these secondary plant chemical compounds, uh, some of them that actually exist in your daily diet. Uh, we've talked about alkaloids um, sometimes these can be toxic uh, sometimes bitter uh, we talked about uh, uh, them f- and you may know that they exist in uh, the Solanaceae family like uh, tomatoes uh, potatoes eggplant all have these alkaloids in them our current cultivars have uh, uh, been developed to reduce the, uh, t- uh, the concentrations of alkaloids in uh, these crops uh, in the 1800s, tomatoes and to a large extent potatoes were considered to be poisonous by many people. Uh, and it had a lot to do with the fact that the alkaloid levels was high, were high enough that uh, it would give many people headaches at a minimum. But these were reasonably neurotoxic uh, alkaloids that appear in what we consider to be a common foodstuff today. Uh, There are very poisonous alkaloids and there are other alkaloids that are not so toxic. We've talked about uh, poison hemlock, the conine uh, alkaloid. Uh, This is uh, a toxic, bitter, and highly toxic, uh, uh, poisonous substance. There are about 6,500 alkaloids, so this is a very large category um, and, in fact, uh, a very well-researched category, especially with regards to the human food chain and some of the potential alkaloids that can appear in our foodstuff. There are many toxic amines. Uh, We've identified about 100 of them. Uh, Often these are repellent or hallucinogenic uh, compounds. Uh, for those of you that uh, uh, have uh, watched media reports in terms of homeland security, uh, there have been some investigations about ricin, uh, which is an extract from castor bean. This is a naturally occurring uh, toxic amine with inc- uh, a very high lethality. There are very, uh, s- about 400 uh, amino ac- acids. Uh, some of these are, are highly toxic. And when you think about it, how can amino acid be toxic? An amino acid, one of the prime uh, modes of toxicity for toxic amino acids is to be incorporated into proteins and yield a essentially a bad peptide, bad protein that does not have the required uh, uh, physiological uh, uh, um, capability of the normal synthesis and pathway. Cyanogenic glycosides uh, appear in nature and in the human food chain. We know about 30 of them. They're poisonous not in, as a parent compound, but as their derivative, which is uh, cyanide. Um, and what we find is that many foodstuffs have uh, cyanogenic glycosides in them, but that we can remove these cyanogenic glycosides uh, uh, by proper food preparation. Uh, for example... Uh, In uh, Latin America and in Africa, one of the major staple foodstuffs is cassava. Uh, Cassava is a starchy, woody tuber root. Uh, It's not a tuber, I'm sorry, it's a woody root uh, that is a a staple foodstuff. The uh, cyanogenic glycosides are actually leached out in a water treatment. Uh, it's soaked in water uh, for about a day or so to, to leach these out and to also oxidize uh, this the cyanogenic glycosides. Um, we also find uh, these compounds, for example, in English ivy, uh, in terms of plants that uh, animals uh, can chew on. Um, and also, uh, you may have heard about them in um, Uh, almonds, uh, bitter almond extract, uh, almond pits. Uh, You'll find them in lima beans, and you'll find them in uh, the pits of uh, many uh, uh, fruits, uh, such as uh, in the pits of apricots. Uh, Glucosinolates are uh, acrid and bitter. Uh, They can actually be used as uh, flavor-enhancing chemicals, Uh, Some of the glucosinolate uh, plants that you probably have on your uh, dining room table include uh, uh, horseradish, various mustards, uh, even cabbage. uh, The cruciferi have significant amounts of glucosinolates, not too much because they can be toxic uh, if nothing uh, else uh, cause you to have an upset stomach. In terms of the terpenoids, uh, there's uh, many different uh, types of these. Uh, The monoterpenes is about a thousand structures. Uh, These are associated with pleasant smells. Uh, If you go into the Blue Mountains or the Smoky Mountains, quite often pine trees will give off uh, uh, some of these terpenoid uh, volatile compounds. And in fact, they're the responsible for the smoke uh, that you see. The, the haze that you see in the Smoky Mountains is actually the volatiles coming off of those pine trees. You can have sesquiterpene lactones. Uh, These are uh, sometimes bitter and toxic. Uh, These are associated with many flowering weeds. Uh, Diterpenoids is about 2,000. Some of these can be toxic. Um, Limonoids, uh, some of these are bitter. You've probably used uh, a recipe that says use lemon zest or the outside, uh, grated outside of a lemon or an orange. Uh, These uh, limonoids are the bitterness uh, that uh, is uh, very good in some recipes, but it does have a bitter and sometimes uh, uh, toxic uh, uh, effect. Um, Cucurbitacins. Uh, are bitter and toxic. Uh, these uh, compounds uh, sometimes are phenolics. Uh, cucumber peel has been used as a repellent uh, and uh, a natural uh, uh, ins- insect repellent. Uh, old wives' uh, tale says uh, put uh, uh, peels of cucumbers underneath your sink to keep cockroaches away. Uh, the um some of these are toxic and bitter. We'll talk about uh, how they are used uh, in terms of plants uh, such as the milkweed in terms of ecological biochemistry. An example here. The carotenoids uh, give us color. It's why we have uh, orange carrots. Uh, These color compounds uh, sometimes have uh, very good antioxidant properties. It's one of the reasons mom tells you to eat your fruits and vegetables. It's because of some of the compounds, these secondary chemical compounds in plants, that actually do uh, have antioxidant activity. Another category, and again, this is not an, uh, a very inclusive list. It's just an example list. Uh, there are various phenolics, uh, simple phenols uh, that uh, exist in nature. Um, some of these are uh, antimicrobial uh, in uh, natural medicine. Uh, if you go to most herbal uh, 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 shops, uh, organic food stores, and even some uh, natural food markets, you'll see various products that have uh, taken advantage of the antimicrobial activity of various plant extracts. And think about this. Why would a plant extract be antimicrobial? Well, it is a part of this chemical warfare strategy of plants versus microbes. Microbes uh, are just another form of life in this competitive strategy for survival. Uh, flavonoids uh, some of these are uh, colored Uh, there are many compounds Uh, many of these have uh, flavor capability capacity Uh, many of these are have antioxidant and uh, anti-cancer capability Uh, these the diversity of the compounds uh, are sometimes associated with uh, many sort of secondary effects in terms of uh, human health and our diet Uh, Quinones, sometimes colored and toxic, uh, about 800 uh, compounds. uh, uh, Again, uh, of these uh, phenols, uh, some of these have various types of activity. Uh, The toxin in poison ivy is a phenolic compound. Here's an example for you how we can kind of follow this uh, uh, concept through in terms of Uh, a plant-plant interaction. Uh, There's a term, allelopathy, um, and these are biochemical interactions between all types of plants. And so this is a chemical-chemical interaction. In history, since the time of ancient Greece, uh, the walnut tree uh, has been observed to kill nearby vegetation. If you don't believe this, next time you see a walnut tree, uh, look at the diversity of uh, uh, flora, Below it uh, you'll see that uh, quite often there's not a lot growing especially when you're talking about uh, a walnut tree that's growing in nature Uh, there is uh, some chemical compounds uh, in this tree and uh, the uh, leaves of this tree that is moderately toxic to some insects horses dogs and humans Uh, I was associated with a veterinary toxicology case of some folks that were using walnut shells uh, uh, chewed up as sawdust For bedding for horses Uh, this contact dermatitis that developed in the horses in terms of inflamed hoof uh, was pretty significant Uh, so this has some dermal potency as well walnut trees produce a bound form of a toxin which then deposits to nearby soil it deposits through leaves stems and roots uh, associated with uh, the walnut tree the leaching uh, of this compound, and this compound uh, is called jugalone. It's a powerful herbicide. Uh, it's a bound formed. Uh, it does hydrolyze and oxidize to ju- uh, to uh, the free form. It's a five hydroxy uh, compound. Uh, this is the active ingredient. Um, this does, uh, in fact, uh, uh, limit the production of of competitive vegetation. And when you think about the walnut tree is competing for the nutrients for the water uh, in the soil underneath it. And it has come up with a strategy, if you want to uh, hypothesize, that uh, uh, essentially poisons off uh, competing vegetation or many varieties of competing vegetation. Another example is uh, of various ways of uh, plants and animals to harness a biosynthesis. Uh, What we have found as uh, being kind of uh, uh, high on the food chain and thinking animals is that we can sometimes use these for our own ends, these secondary chemical compounds. Uh, Many of these, if you read back even in texts uh, thousands of years old, people have uh, uh, witnessed nature and used nature to their own ends. Uh, They have developed various plant-based medicines, uh, uh, various uh, poisons that have been used uh, in hunting and warfare. Uh, You've probably seen the movies with the poison darts, and uh, coming from what was referred to as poison dart frogs. Uh, Various pesticides, especially there are natural uh, and organic uh, pesticides, In lecture four, we reviewed rotenone, uh, which comes from uh, the root of a plant, which is a very, very strong uh, uh, herbicide uh, that is also uh, used as an aquatic toxin. It will kill fish uh, and limit their respiratory uptake. Uh, We've also used many of these uh, chemicals as flavors. Uh, The pepper plant and black pepper uh, was uh, an ancient commodity uh, in the 1400s uh, that uh, had uh, close to uh, its, its, its uh, value in terms of uh, rareness as, as gold. Uh, the picture here is uh, of one of these poison dart frogs. Uh, this is Philobetus uh, terribilis. Um, it produces um, bacrotoxin. This is a steroidal alkaloid. It's secreted from glands on the skin. Uh, this is a highly toxic uh, compound. Uh, in fact, if you do an extrapolation from animal studies, uh, it will uh, the toxicity is about 136 milligrams of this. Uh, the lethal dose is about 136 milligrams of this uh, uh, steroidal alkaloid for a 150-pound human. So this is about a. Uh, a dose about the size of a sand grain, so this is a highly toxic uh, neuromuscular uh, inhibitor, a highly toxic uh, chemical compound, natural chemical compound. We have also uh, uh, in the plant and animal kingdom uh, relationships that we observe uh, from microbiology this is an example of how humans have harnessed some of the biosynthesis of nature. Uh, this is a very interesting story, and, and you probably have, have heard and seen about uh, the medicine hunters uh, that uh, will uh, look for new plant and animal chemicals, based chemicals, in uh, the jungle and the Amazon depths and marine resources. This particular case had to do with a Dow chemical scientist who actually, whenever uh, he went on vacation, would always bring back soil samples from the exotic places wherever he went. And this particular soil sample came from Hawaii. And this microbiologist would then isolate the local bacteria in that soil. Um, in this particular case, uh, he isolated uh, a uh, soil ectinomycete uh, Saccharopolyspora spinosa. This particular uh, microbe actually uh, produces a chemical compound, uh, spinosin, and uh, essentially the story goes uh, this particular compound was identified as a uh, uh, a particularly toxic compound against uh, chewing worms. It causes rapid excitation of the insect nervous system, so it's a neurotoxin. Uh, It had uh, very good off-target effects. It was non-toxic or moderately toxic to to fish and and animals. And it also, as a natural compound, had the uh, uh, property of rapid biodegradation. In terms of agricultural chemicals, uh, if you can produce uh, an insecticide which has low off-target effects, Uh, It's relatively non-toxic, and it has rapid biodegradation. You have achieved much in terms of our quest for safer agricultural chemicals. Uh, This particular chemical, spinosad, is in current production. It's actually used uh, in uh, many vegetables. Uh, This is kind of what the structure looks like. And in fact, they took the basic uh, natural uh, substance and uh, from a synthesis point of view, uh, created two different varieties, spinosin A uh, and spinosin D. Um, But again, uh, a chemical of natural origin. This is where a chemical company looked to nature as being the progenitor of a synthetic method to manage uh, insect infestation in vegetable crops. We also find that organisms have the ability to detoxify. We've seen that uh, in humans in Lecture 8. We have the ability to adapt to various natural and unnatural chemicals uh, through biotransformation. Uh, Some of these can actually uh, be evolutionary, but also acclimatization processes, especially uh, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, In fact, this is the concept of acclimatization. Uh, Some of these detoxification pathways uh, include uh, pathways for metabolism and biotransformation of toxicants, and so we go back to phase one and phase two, uh, and we can also look at the immune system, especially when we are dealing with large molecules, molecules that have molecular weights typically greater than 500, 600, that will induce an immune response uh, as opposed to uh, a direct response. Uh, uh, chemical transformation. Um, These processes include uh, microbial biodegradation and various uh, biomineralization processes. We can also look at uh, plants and animals detoxifying via a phase change. Remember that if our biotransformation uh, changes it to a volatile compound, we can exhale it Our breath may smell like garlic, uh, but uh, we are perhaps volatilizing some of the sulfur compounds that might have been potentially toxic. We can also sequester um, various toxicants uh, through its uh, relative solubility in adipose tissue. Or in the case of inorganics, those can be uh, sequestered in bone tissue as being two of the prime vectors for sequestration. Recalling uh, our discussions about phase one and phase two, these are primary uh, pathways in animals. Uh, phase two include uh, glucuronide or sulfate formation. We try to attach larger, highly polar substrates in a conjugation reaction. Uh, In plants, glucoside formation is the key detoxification, phase 2 detoxification reaction. So we can follow some of those same sorts of biotransformation pathways, but in plants, typically we're going to find a sugar conjugation happening. This is carried out by glucosol transferase enzyme and a uridine diphosphate glucose as a cofactor in plants. Uh, these are very water-soluble uh, metabolites, and these are pushed out into the cell vacuole for elimination. Uh, some of these um, uh, highly phytotoxic phenols uh, that can happen in nature, uh, these chemical compounds, uh, can undergo this Uh There are, uh, in uh, systemic fungicidal anti-chemicals, there are the potential for uh, the formation of anti-metabolites in these glucoside forms as well in some plants uh, uh, those of you that come from an agricultural background know that there are some types of herbicides that you can put out on crops or uh, if you're a homeowner and you're using uh, certain types of herbicides you note that you can put weed killers out on your lawn and it kills the weeds but not the grass so there is some selectivity or selective ability uh, for uh, herbicides to be uh, effective or uh, herbicidal uh, against certain types of plants but other uh, types of plants uh, it's somewhat innocuous an example of this is 2,4-D, 2,4-dichlorophenoxyacetic acid Uh, This is a common herbicide uh, used uh, for, for example, dandelion treatment on lawns. Um, uh, It is uh, relatively non-toxic. There's some concern about it as a chlorinated herbicide. Uh, EPA has done studies and seen that, in fact, this gets tracked in off your lawn into your household. There's been some uh, analysis in terms of mammalian toxicity and concern about lymphoma in dogs a lot of follow-up in terms of the common use of this in residential areas as well as its use in agricultural areas. How does it work? Well it's an extremely active auxin which an auxin in plant terminology is a growth hormone so if you ever watched this uh, the dandelions uh, on your lawn after application of 2,4-D you see that in fact it takes a while to kick in sometimes as much as a week what happens is the dandelion itself seems to grow very rapidly and what happens is the plant grows beyond its nutritional uh, capacity to provide for cell growth and structure uh, the colors uh, the growth uh, outstrips the ability of the plant to produce energy and in fact it grows so fast it upsets the growth cycle and kills the plant however some crop plants uh, and as well uh, your grass can degrade it, and it does so at a fast rate. How that happens, here's the chemical compound, uh, 2,4-D, and in weeds you get this abnormal uh, plant growth. It's not detoxified immediately. It takes too long, but in, for example, in the crops of wheat, and peas or in grasses in general, uh, it detoxifies uh, to this particular phenolic compound and finally it adds the sugar onto it for elimination. And so it's biotransforming, it's detoxifying, and uh, has the ability. And so some species will do this, other species don't do this, and so we have species selectivity of this particular herbicide. This is an interesting example. This is fluorocitrate in kangaroos, and we've talked about fluorocitrate, uh, or the compound 1080 several times in the course as an example of a chemical. We went through its action on the Krebs cycle in terms of uh, uh, biotransformation lecture. This is an interesting case study, because as I said at that time, uh, fluorocitrate is actually a naturally occurring chemical compound. It occurs in pasture plants, in this case, in Western Australia. It also occurs uh, in several plants in uh, South America. In Western Australia, the plants are gastrolobium and oxylobium. Uh, this chemical compound, to recall, is highly lethal. The toxic dose is one milligram for a 1,080-kilogram, a 2,000-pound animal. Uh, and so this is, uh, again, a highly lethal chemical compound. And we talked about how floral citrate essentially shuts down the Krebs energy cycle. Interestingly enough, we find that the rat and gray kangaroo of Western Australia have evolved resistance to this particular uh, chemical compound. So there has been evolutionary uh, adaptation of the animals that grow up around this. The, other, the idea here is that if you haven't, uh, you have a very short lifespan indeed uh, if you happen to feed off this particular chemical. And so there was, over the evolutionary history of this species, some selection for those animals that can biotransform or degrade fluorocitrate. They do it with in vivo defluorination uh, with glutathione, so they actually do have a metabolic pathway that has been identified uh, to detoxify this particular chemical. Interestingly enough, it find, we find that uh, if we look at kangaroos from other parts of Australia, uh, Eastern Australia, um, same uh, species of kangaroos, uh, they have not developed this tolerance, uh, and uh, uh, if they, they have uh, grown up or evolved in areas without uh, those particular plants, and so they don't have this uh, tolerance. Now, another section of uh, our biochemical uh, adaptation and transformation has to do with microbial processes. Uh, These are our smallest animals. Uh, Microbial biotransformation and biodegradation is a part of the system of turnover of chemicals on a very small or microscopic uh, uh, basis. These are microbe-induced changes or breakdowns of various natural uh, and or synthetic uh, chemical compounds. Um, Some of these uh, can be uh, xenobiotic uh, contaminants and some are not. The dose is very important in terms of uh, uh, biocidal activity. Uh, Some toxins can have the capacity to kill off uh, a large amount of the microbe uh, population but leave some stragglers uh, behind. Sometimes these stragglers have a different uh, metabolism, and so there is a potential for selection of these microbes. Uh, We visit this uh, potential every time we use antibiotics. What the physician and the pharmacist will tell you is to take your dose, take all of your doses for the full effect. The idea is to eliminate, as best possible, all of the microbes uh, so that the ones that are resistant to that antibiotic are not the ones that remain, and therefore continue uh, an increase in population and its infectious uh, pathogenesis. Some of the causes, why do microbes do this? They do it to detoxify their local environment. Uh, they do it also for nutrition. You present microbes with uh, a chemical compound that has uh, some level of toxicity, and but that is all that it's exposed to in terms of oxidizable carbon sources. What happens is there will be a short term evolution, uh, a mutational uh, process that they again turn this into food. There are other pathways that include the ability to use these chemicals as terminal electron acceptors for respiration, and sometimes that has the ability to detoxify the environment as well. What are some of the factors associated with microbial activity in chemical compounds? Uh, the fact that we have a high degree of evolutionary diversification in the microbial population. On a relative basis, we have a very high specific surface area. Uh, we have a high rate of population turnover in microbes. Uh, the survival of tolerant and acclimatized organisms uh, is significant in terms of setting the uh, microbe diversity for the next generations and there can, because of the way of uh, reproduction in microbes, uh, can be a heritable change in these population characteristics. Some of the key processes involved uh, with biodegradation, biomineralization, are enzymatic and, as I said, are respiratory uh, in various uh, changes uh, associated with chemical uh, uh, environments of microbes. Uh, These enzyme processes are catalytic reactions. The respiratory processes are thermodynamic reactions. Aerobic, uh, aerobic uh, bacteria, aerobes, they use oxygen as a terminal electron acceptor in respiration, but anaerobic bacteria use a variety of other chemical compounds as terminal electron acceptors. They can use nitrate, they can use uh, manganese, uh, ferric iron, sulfate, you've heard the term perhaps, sulfate-reducing bacteria. That's what gives us the stinky uh, sulfur rotten egg smell in many anaerobic muds uh, and sometimes CO2 as well. These anaerobic and aerobic bacteria help modulate various biogeochemical redox reactions. These redox reactions can have the ability to sequester heavy metals. So, For example, uh, we talked about uh, the process of sulfate-reducing bacteria. Interacting with selenium and providing for an anaerobic uh, terminal electron acceptor uh, process to sequester selenium. But that same type of bacteria can also produce sulfide, which will uh, impact uh, dissolved heavy metals like lead, mercury, uh, zinc, and produce metal sulfides, which are also insoluble insoluble but oxidizable. So as long as this uh, area of the environment is maintained as anaerobic, it is predominantly insoluble. But if we turn over that soil in agriculture or in mining operations, we have the ability to introduce oxygen, to oxidize these reduced substrates, and then free the heavy metals. Therein lies some of the problems associated with heavy metal release in these anthropogenic activities. Some of these bacteria processes uh, detoxify uh, in the same way that we've learned in terms of phase one, phase two type processes. Uh, the same goal exists as, as it does in us uh, to identify it or render it uh, less or non-toxic. Uh, and it also helps that as they're rendering it non-toxic, they make it less toxic for us as well. Uh, for example, when bacteria dehalogenate PCBs, uh, We learned that uh, these polychlorinated chemical compounds uh, typically have higher toxicity um, with uh, uh, chlorination. As they dechlorinate it and degrade it, uh, they can reduce the toxicity. Uh, They can also change its physical properties in terms of volatility as well. As I've defined before, biomineralization will take this chemical process of an organic chemical and mineralize it or oxidize it totally to carbon dioxide and water. So it takes it all the way through as a substrate. And so this is typically regarded as a good thing. There can be a process, and if you're uh, a microbial ecologist uh, or uh, study biodegradation associated with microbiology, you have probably heard the term co-metabolism. Co-metabolism is the gratuitous oxidation of a chemical uh, by an organism, so it's not using it for energy recovery. Sometimes it just happens because it's in a highly oxidized environment via the chemical turnover of the bacteria itself, and so it's typically a chemical-to-chemical interaction, not an interaction of the chemical with the microbe itself. And so the microbe is changing the environment and sometimes that helps oxidize uh, the local environment and oxidize the chemicals that are around it. We can use this uh, strategy, the fact that microbes uh, can eat, if you will, uh, toxic compounds in the process uh, called bioremediation. This typically is an engineered strategy even if it uh, is an intrinsic bioremediation where we look at natural processes. Uh, Typically these are in situ Um, If you've ever been on an industrial site uh, that uses uh, a lot of heavy equipment uh, repeatedly, things like mining sites uh, are an example. They use big trucks, uh, big tractors, shovels. Uh, There are fuel leaks. There are hydraulic leaks. And so there is contamination of soil. Currently, the way we manage that in terms of regulatory uh, RCRA uh, requirements is these uh, companies are required to shovel up that soil, and quite often they take it to what's called a land farming operation. So they deposit all this oil-contaminated soil in a uh, uh, contained environment, and then they do nothing but sometimes add a little bit of fertilizer and turn it over and keep it very oxidized and let natural processes start chewing on these reduced hydrocarbons to biodegrade uh, this. It's a land farming approach to remediation of these oil-contaminated soils. We can also have a process of biostimulation, and this is where we're going to add nutrients to speed it up because sometimes the microbes might need a little bit more than what you're feeding it to to do it at an acceptable rate of turnover or remediation. We can also use a process called bioaugmentation And this happens, for example, when the local microbial ecology is unsatisfactory in terms of uh, turning over or remediating this particular chemical compound. And so you can take some soil or some inocula from other places. uh, For instance, petroleum uh, degraders might be a very high concentration in the land farm. You want to start a land farm somewhere else. uh, You might inoculate them to kind of kick it over uh, and help it along. The fact that uh, microbes use enzymes and enzymatic processes uh, in degradation uh, is uh, fortuitous, because we can then isolate these enzymes from fermenters, harvest them, if you will, and then just use the enzymes uh, from these cultures in various engineered treatments of chemical waste. And so this is, these are some of the ways that we have learned to marshal the forces of microbial nature to achieve our ends of engineering a a response to some of the messes that we leave uh, in terms of uh, soil and water contamination another strategy uh, that an organism might have is uh, a phase change strategy and uh, this is where a chemical change is going to happen because of typically enzymatic processes that allow for a reduction in toxicity uh, and an increase in the elimination rate. An example of this would be the volatilization of various bioalkylated metals and metalloids by microbes and plants. Uh, we don 't necessarily think of arsenic selenium lead mercury and antimony as volatile. we think of them as heavy metals, but in fact, we can create volatile uh, methyl mercury, uh, which is one of the parts of the biogeochemical cycle uh, of mercury, and we do that via microbial processes by fungal processes by plant processes and So what we have hypothesized is that this volatilization is a part of the strategy of the organism to detoxify its local environment. We can also find that uh, there are some processes uh, uh, of sequestration and bioaccumulation that uh, an organism will use in terms of managing its local environment. Uh, we've talked about uh, mammalian incorporation of lead into bone, um, plant incorporation of selenium in to these amino acids, uh, sometimes non-protein amino acids as a survival strategy. We talked as well in our selenium uh, discussions about the microbial reduction of the oxyanions of selenium into selenium zero, uh, which is a solid, a relatively non-soluble solid, and then that would be uh, incorporated into uh, the solid portions of the cell sequestered away. Uh, in fact, microbial scientists, that, uh, microbiologists that have examined selenium-reducing uh, 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 microbiology have uh, also deduced that there are some cells that uh, there appear to be somewhat suicidal uh, in a population of cells that hyperaccumulate this selenium zero to the point of lethality, uh, essentially sacrificing themselves as pawns for the population. Uh, And uh, uh, this is uh, a part of a uh, population process, uh, this terminator suicidal uh, cell. Some of this uh, sequestration and bioaccumulation in plants uh, can be used uh, for hazardous site waste cleanup. Uh, You may have heard the term phytoremediation. There are various plants that have been uh, planted, cultivated on contaminated soils or in contaminated waters. If they're aquatic plants, and these plants uh, selectively hyperaccumulate uh, a heavy metal, typically something like lead or zinc, uh, these plants can then be harvested. They've cleaned the soil, um, and then the plants themselves can be, for example, incinerated or had the uh, go through a next step of uh, uh, being buried in a hazardous waste site, cleaning up the soil, uh, decreasing the contamination level. There can be also some organic examples. Um, this can be uh, the accumulation of uh, nonpolar compounds such as DDT and dioxins in adipose tissue. Uh, there are, uh, as these uh, plants and animals uh, sequester and bioaccumulate, you can see uh, these processes up a food chain. Uh, What we observe in organic compounds quite often is the concept of uh, uh, bioaccumulation factors or bioconcentration factors. Uh, We can find these concentrations to increase up a food chain by a factor of 100 to 1,000, some cases even 10,000. Sometimes this can have dramatic impacts in terms of uh, top of the food chain ecology Uh, if in fact the concentration magnifies up the food chain it may not be at a toxic level at the lower ends of the food chain but it may have dramatic impacts and toxicity at the upper part of the food chain An example of this uh, is PCB biomagnification Uh, this is in uh, the Great Lakes actually this is a lake food chain if you look at this uh, graphic here um, in terms of the concentration and the relative magnification here phytoplankton to zooplankton, you get about a 50-fold uh, concentration increase, uh, magnification. Uh, as you go to smelt small feeder fish, uh, a factor of 416. F- uh, larger pre- predatory fish, a uh, factor of almost 2,000 above the phytoplankton. And then because we have predatory birds feeding on uh, the food chain, uh, we get a factor of, in this case, 50,000 at these high concentrations, then we start seeing things like eggshell thinning, thinning, uh, teratogenesis, immune dysfunction, all of the associated uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon type compound uh, end effects, toxic end effects that we discussed in the dioxin and related compounds uh, lecture in the course. This is uh, an example I'm gonna talk about here for the next uh, remaining, a couple of examples for the remaining part of the lecture of ecological biochemical interaction. Uh, This uh, is associated with the transfer of these biosynthesized secondary compounds between different organisms. And so these are not toxins in the environment in terms of anthropogenic toxins that bioaccumulate and transfer among species. These are chemical compounds that are biosynthesized by typically one of the species in this interaction. And this happens because of food web interactions, and it is hypothesized uh, and seen in terms of uh, wildlife studies to be a part of the survival strategy of the uh, individual species. There appears to be some symbiotic relationship between uh, very diverse uh, species in some of these cases. One of the cases we're going to talk about is the milkweed plant, monarch, uh, butterfly, and blue, jane, blue jay uh, uh, bird uh, uh, plant-animal uh, interaction. This is one of the classic examples of plant-animal co-evolution. And this is the insects are using plant toxins uh, against high predators. What we find is that these uh, plants, uh, typically uh, milkweed or the oleander-type plants, Uh, that uh, produce uh, these uh, uh, certain types of toxins, have a relationship with insects that feed on them. In this particular case, uh, we'll talk about the monarch butterfly. Um, Note that the monarch butterfly, if you're not a butterfly person, is bright red. Uh, There's probably some uh, evolutionary significance to its coloring in terms of alerting potential predators about what it feeds on. And then finally, the blue jay uh, and the relationship of the blue jay to the insects and plants in this particular re- uh, threefold relationship. What I've done here in this slide is uh, illustrate the chain of events uh, that happens in this relationship. Uh, the milkweed produces uh, these bitter, toxic cardiac glycosides uh, as a passive defense. And so uh, these cardiac glycosides uh, are actually uh, toxic, uh, uh, potentially uh, they increase uh, heart rate uh, in a very uh, uh, rapid way. Um, In fact, uh, there are some plants that produce uh, cardiac glycosides uh, that we, in fact, uh, have developed some heart medicines from. Uh, what we find is that the feeding monarch butterfly caterpillar uh, is well adapted to these toxins and actually stores them. So it bioaccumulates or accumulates them selectively. Uh, the adult butterfly then flies away and it has these uh, sequestered cardiac glycosides uh, within its body tissues. And then you have a blue jay coming along and they see this uh, attractive, uh, brightly colored butterfly. It catches their attention. This is there's lunch for me. Uh, The blue jay tries feeding on these uh, 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 brightly colored butterflies. Uh, It's bitter, it's toxic. Uh, The uh, blue jay vomits. Uh, It doesn't turn out so well for the particular butterfly. But uh, for the rest of the butterflies, uh, that blue jay isn't necessarily going to consider that to be a food source. Uh, and so in the future avoids those brightly colored monarch butterflies. So there's a system relationship, uh, plant-animal animal animal relationship here in terms of a coevolution strategy. The cardiac glycosides give you an idea of the complexity and the shape and size of these molecules, Calotropin from the milkweed, oleandrin from the uh, uh, oleander plant. Uh, The oleander plant, uh, if you're ever driven in California, there's typically brightly colored uh, highway plants in the middle, uh, sometimes dividers. Uh, they have uh, red, pink, or white flowers. Uh, they're uh, uh, wonderfully uh, tolerant uh, Mediterranean plants, uh, but they do contain these uh, cardiac glycosides. An interesting uh, story for you I was involved in a veterinary diagnostic uh, toxicology case workup uh, in California, actually. What happened was uh, a semi-tractor trailer of sugar beets overturned on a California uh, freeway uh, made a mess, uh, scattering these sugar beets all over the highway, blocked traffic, and uh, the Caltrans uh, people, the people that maintained the freeway, had to come in with big shovels and scoop up all the sugar beets, bring them in another truck, and kind of haul them out of there. Uh, They actually did continue on their way to a sugar plant. Uh, They did enter processing, and then someone uh, uh, noticed there was a problem, and it was a problem because sugar beet uh, pulp, after uh, sugar extraction, which is a hot water extraction, uh, was being fed to animals, and they noticed that there was a significant amount of these oleander plants that had also been scraped up into the sugar beets and therefore came out in the beet pulp. Uh, These cardiac glycosides are toxic uh, to animals. The sugar plant itself had already processed uh, these into their main uh, chemical, uh, I'm sorry, the main processing stream. Uh, They had to shut it down, uh, flush the entire plant, uh, dump a whole uh, week's worth of sugar uh, in response to the potential presentation of cardiac glycosides into the human food chain. A very unfortunate situation for all involved. Next uh, uh, ecological biochemistry example we'll talk about is Ciguatera fish poisoning. Um, This is the most commonly reported marine toxic uh, disease in the world. Uh, It's associated with the consumption of contaminated reef fish. The vector fish are typically uh, high on the uh, aquatic food chain, Uh, fish such as barracuda grouper and snapper. Uh, There's about 50,000 victims of Ciguatera fish poisoning per year. Uh, the uh, presentation, uh, the pathogenesis of this disease is a debilitating uh, neurologic symptoms, includes profound weakness, temperature sensation, uh, various uh, pains and, and numbness in the extremities. Uh, how this comes to us is through the presentation in the food chain of ciguatoxin. Uh, ciguatoxin is, is produced by the dinoflagellate uh, Gambardiscus toxicus, uh, it produces uh, this particular toxin throughout the world. Uh, this uh, biomagnifies up the food chain. The most common toxins associated with uh, ciguatera are ciguatoxin and mitotoxin, these have been identified as some of the most lethal uh, natural substances known Uh, The mice uh, LD50 from an interperitoneal uh, injection, this is an injection into the abdominal cavity, is 0.45 micrograms per kilogram, so less than a microgram per kilogram is lethal. Uh, Cigotoxin is lipid-soluble. It opens the voltage-dependent sodium channels in cell membranes. Uh, It induces, therefore, membrane depolarization. Uh, What we find in terms of human consumption is lethality is seen when we uh, have individuals that ingest the most toxic parts of the fish. Not that many people eat fish liver or fish gonads, but uh, these are associated with high degree of accumulation of uh, this particular toxin. This toxin molecule, again, just to kind of highlight and illustrate for you what these uh, toxins look for, like. Um, this is also a macrolid, a multi-polycyclic uh, 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 molecule. Um, it's interesting uh, to it give you uh, a respect for nature, how uh, biosynthesis uh, can be quite complex in terms of some of the molecules that present in the natural world. Our final uh, example here in this ecological biochemistry lecture is going to be the relationship of uh, various types of moths with pyrolizidine alkaloids. Uh, Pyrolizidine alkaloids uh, are a type of alkaloids, they're hepatotoxic. uh, They cause uh, uh, occlusive disease, uh, and, uh, we find them actually in many, uh, plants, uh, including groundsel, sole, uh, as you can see in this particular, uh, plant. This is a, a common plant in the United States, a common weed variety. Uh, ragwort is another one. Uh, The relationship uh, for uh, peralizidine alkaloids is with the moth, uh, typically tiger moth or cinnabar moth, uh, in terms of the relationships of this plant uh, with these insects. What we find uh, with these senecio alkaloids, um, that these highly toxic uh, PAs, or peralizidine alkaloids, uh, are are found in the various species of the genus uh, Senecio. They are poisonous to foraging wildlife, life and and livestock Um, they're very strong hepatotoxins Uh, sometimes uh, you can go into a uh, herbal store uh, or a natural food store and still find uh, occasionally uh, comfrey tea Uh, comfrey is a plant i have it growing in my garden my herb garden Uh, It is typically used uh, in uh, natural medicine as an astringent, uh, as a a surface uh, medical uh, uh, treatment, uh, although it has had historical use as a tea. Um, Probably not a good thing, and this actually represents one of the largest risks associated with uh, the use of herbal products. Herbal products are not managed as medicines. They're not managed by the FDA, what you take as an herbal product uh, is whatever the manufacturer decides they want to put into it. Uh, the oversight is, is uh, non-existent uh, in, uh, for, for many. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, uh, essentially to damn the, the herbal uh, market. I think there are some, some wonderful products out there, but there are also some extraordinarily risky products out there risky in terms of what actually uh, comes to play in some of these teas. In uh, mammals, pyrrolizidine alkaloids, um, this is the general shape and structure uh, of it. It's a large ester with this, uh, this um, uh, alkaloid, uh, uh, pyrolyzidine alkaloid uh, functionality here. There's hydrolysis to retronescine, uh, some chemical changes down to hydroxyhex-2-enol. This particular compound is hepatotoxic. It binds to liver, um, uh, again, causes uh, some of the problems. Uh, Pearlis alkaloids are uh, uh, regarded as carcinogens and hepatotoxins, and this is the mode of toxicity associated with this particular chemical in mammals. Uh, in the senecio-moth interaction, these pyrrolizidine alkaloids uh, from the plants that they feed on are actually sequestered and stored by the moths. Uh, the moths, uh, interestingly enough, can biotransform one alkaloid uh, in vivo uh, within themselves uh, into another. Uh, they find that uh, toxic alkaloids, these senecio-alkaloids, are present in the insect eggs as well. And these moths, the tiger moth and others, have bright colors and patterns. Uh, again, uh, the idea here is that uh, it's warning potential predators that uh, I'm, a, I'm a toxic meal. Uh, interestingly enough, these moths will also feed on foxgloves, uh, Digitalis purpurea. Uh, it's another source of cardiac uh, glycosides. Uh, Some of you may know relatives that are on a uh, heart medicine that goes by the name of digitalis, which is a derivative of this cardiac glycoside. Well, in in, uh, Lepidoptera, uh, or butterflies and moths. Uh, there's a different pyrolizidine alkaloid metabolism. Uh, what we find is that uh, this chemical compound, uh, the PAs can get stored uh, in the tissues uh, uh, of butterflies and moths. There can be hydrolysis uh, of that compound, again, to retronescine. Um, but the next step uh, in, in uh, Lepidoptera is a pheromone synthesis. That pheromone synthesis ends up with uh, three different products here, all from the same uh, basic uh, chemical uh, alkaloid substrate. Interestingly enough, these three chemicals have a purpose. Um, these uh, uh, purposes in uh, uh, mammals, uh, it actually goes to the parole, which can bind with DNA and, and uh Uh, can break down to these reactive metabolites, hepatotoxins, and and carcinogens. But in uh, Lepidoptera, the pyrolizidine alkaloids actually uh, act as essential pheromone precursors. Uh, So the biotransformation in these uh, tiger moths are actually to a love dust uh, that these uh, animals use uh, uh, to interact with each other. So therein uh, gives you uh, a, a good background for uh, ecological biochemistry. Um, the idea here being uh, that the natural world does present us uh, with toxic challenges. As uh, predators on the, the food chain, uh, we have the potential uh, to be presented uh, uh, with those toxins just through our normal and natural. But on the other hand, I think it's important to regard the secondary principles Uh, chemical compounds in plants and sometimes in animals as well in terms of bioaccumulation, as also as uh, necessary uh, uh, chemicals uh, in terms of making our diets interesting, in terms of the color of our foods, the taste sensations of our foods, and also our ability to use these models for medicines and for uh, understanding the natural environment around us. Until next time, we'll see you. Thanks much.